Good morning, you may be seated. I want to welcome you to worship this morning, whether you're here in the room or you're joining us uh, by distance. We are here to bring glory and honor to God and to praise Him. So let's do that and enjoy this morning. Um, announcements are short. Uh, I'm combining Bible study and uh, prayer meeting this week on Tuesday night. So we're going to start doing both of them on Tuesday night. We'll start prayer meeting at 630 and be transitioning to Bible study at about 7. Feel free to join us um, for either or both of those elements. And you dropping in and dropping out won't bother me. Um, so be sure to, to plan to join us. Also, if you're visiting with us this morning, there's a card on the a chair in front of you, pick it out of that pocket and fill it out and turn it in at the end of the service. There's also a card online on our website for those of you who are joining us virtually. Would you pray with me? Lord, we come before your presence. We are humbled by the opportunity and the responsibility. We are also humbled because we know we're not worthy, but that you have made us worthy by the blood of your Son. So that promise we claim, and we are here today ready to meet you. So let our hearts and our minds be stilled. May we be receptive to the leading of your Spirit. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We're going to read Psalm 136 together. Um, I will read the first slide. You will read the second. So would you stand as we continue in worship in the word of the Lord? Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. Oh, give thanks to the God of gods. For his steadfast love endures forever. Oh, give thanks to the Lord of lords. For his steadfast love endures forever. Who alone does great wonders. For his steadfast love endures forever. Who by understanding made the heavens. His steadfast love endures forever. Who spread out the earth on the waters. For his steadfast love endures forever. Who made the great lights. For his steadfast love endures forever. The sun to rule over the day. For his steadfast love endures forever. The moon and stars to rule over the night. For his steadfast love endures forever. It is he who remembered us in our low estate. For his steadfast love endures forever. And rescued us from our foes. For his steadfast love endures forever. Who gives food to all flesh. For his steadfast love endures forever. Oh, give thanks to the God of heaven. For his steadfast love 
Remain standing, we'll sing. Please be seated. We're going to come together in prayer. And I invite you to be active in this time and not passive. I will lead us in, in prayer. But my desire is that you be praying with me. You can listen out of one ear. You're, you're capable to do that. We're grateful that Belinda Floyd got a plan. Her, her trip was relatively uneventful and safe, and she's now scheduled for surgery on the 3rd, so I'll be praying for that as well. Everett came through his uh, outpatient surgery well, and, and I'm sure he's doing well. He was honorary with me this morning. I take that as a good sign. All the things we try to do to help you worship can be blocked if you don't come with an attitude of worship. So let us worship together in prayer. Our most gracious God, we come to you now because we have no other choice. You have made yourself known to us. You are the single most important fact in our lives. To ignore you would be the same as ignoring the air around us or the water or food that must replenish our physical needs. But you're not indifferent. You have shown yourself to be a loving Father that invites us in to share the concerns of our hearts. You've created us to share in your purpose for this world. You've given us responsibilities, and you offer us more. May we be true servants in this week as you seek to heal the broken world where we move and live. I pray that the needs that we have, the physical needs and the emotional needs, financial needs, these needs are very real and we bring them to you. We pray for the fear that's rampant in our communities and particularly issues around our children going back to school, whether they be kindergartners or they be seniors in university. May we listen, may we act responsibly, and may we trust in you. So Lord, bring us to worship, bring us to your word, may your spirit guide us so that we hear what you have for us this day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You have an opportunity to give this morning. Uh, to return a portion of what God um, 
provides for you. Um, if I'm here long enough, you'll never hear me preach a sermon on tithing. Tithing is too cheap a response for our God. The Lord we serve demands everything that we have. You need to return a significant portion to the ministries that he has laid upon your heart, including this congregation. This is your home. And you wouldn't think about not taking care of your home, so take care of this place as well and the people who serve you. Would you stand as we read our text? Found in John or Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 to 16. You're the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hid. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it under the bushel basket, but on a, the lampstand. And it gives light to the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. This is the word of the Lord for the people of the Lord. You may be seated. You know, you don't appreciate light until you've been in darkness. I, I, I was made aware of it most of my life when we went to my, my grandparents' house, my mother's parents. They had the only house on a 10-mile stretch of backwoods Arkansas Road in Stone County. And when it got dark there, it got dark. Our oldest son was about six months old, Brenda tells me. I asked her to verify this. I knew he was small, but I didn't remember how much. Anyway, still small enough that when we made the trip... Um, after we got off work and, and my dad drove us down there in his pickup, it, Brenda was sitting in the front seat with Brian sitting on her lap um, until we got there at about 2 o'clock in the morning. She had had a scare as she nodded off and then woke up as we went around with dad's headlights out over one of those mountainsides, and it looked like we were <laughs> heading into oblivion. But then we pulled up in front of Monroe's house. And Dad pulled up just in front of, the, of, of his fence, and he cut off the truck, and I got out, and I walked up to the, to the fence, and Dad had his headlights still on bright. And I started yelling, Monroe! Yo, Monroe! And Dad started honking the horn. And Brenda said, why doesn't he just walk up and knock on the door? And in all serious, my dad looked at her and he said, because he doesn't want to get shot. Now, you think I may be exaggerating, but a few years earlier, I drove up to his house one morning. I'd left early and I got there mid-morning and there he was out on his front porch and he had his toolkit out and he was patching his screen door. Because the night before, somebody thought they were going to take him by surprise. You see, he just got his pension check. And on that lonely stretch of road, it wasn't the first time somebody had tried to come in on him. And as I helped him in that screen hole, that hole in his screen, it was about an inch and a half above my head. 
So somebody was very fortunate they were short. Light is essential. And when you don't have it, you know you don't have it. We take it for granted. And we take it for granted except when there's a power outage. But my guess is each of us have a story about the oppressiveness of darkness. Maybe not as dramatic as as mine, but you probably didn't have a, a grandfather as dramatic as mine. Maybe you did. But this type of oppressive darkness is the context for these people sitting on this hillside. Remember, we're still in the Sermon on the Mount. Last week, they were sitting there and they heard Jesus say, you're the salt of the world, or the salt of the earth. And they're still sitting there. And not much has transpired. And they're probably still mulling over that point. What does he mean that we're the salt of the earth? And what does he mean? Is this an insult when he says, if you've lost your saltiness, we're going to throw you out on the road and you're not going to be good for anything except for people to walk on? I mean, you may not have got that insult, but some of those folks may have been insulted. They're still mulling this over, and all of a sudden, he says, you're the light of the world. We all got to concede his point that cities on hillsides are hard to miss. And it's likely, scholars say, that putting a, lighting a lamp and putting it under a bushel was a proverb. Uh, that you don't do that kind of thing if you're smart. That smart, reasonably intelligent people don't hide lights they've just lit. In. But one thing you won't catch, and this occurs in Jesus' teaching often, and, and unless we go looking for it, we miss it, is the fact that these people were probably nodding their heads in reference to Isaiah 49 6 which is the backdrop to what they probably heard, where he said, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise the tribes of Jacob and to restore the survivors of Israel. I will give you as a light to the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Jesus didn't have to quote this. They knew it. And it was probably their backdrop that they were being reminded that they are the children of Abraham. And Abraham was, was promised and his descendants were promised to be a blessing to the entire world. And Isaiah had pinned these words to begin giving fuller and deeper expression to that. But this was a mixed gathering on this hillside. There are religious professionals there. There are fisher folk they are merchants and a smattering of farmers. Some are well-schooled in books, others in the hard school of life. But it's safe to say that two things were common. They were Jewish, and they were there to hear Jesus. So they, they were ready to hear this referral to this well-known verse. But then another verse follows, verse 7. Thus saith the Lord, 
the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, to the deeply despised and abhorred by the nation, the slave of rulers, kings will see and stand up, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Being chosen by God is not something new to these folks. It's, It's something they take for granted. But Jesus is in the middle of a sermon where he's saying, the kingdom of God is at hand, and here are the characteristics of the people of the kingdom. So these people who were who took for granted being the light of the world and having these type of responses expected because they were descendants of Abraham weren't prepared when Jesus took and shifted just a quarter of a turn to being that the ones who were the light of the world, the ones who were the salt of the earth, were those who accepted his call to repent and take their place in the kingdom. And that's what's startling about Jesus' reference to the light. What was new and revolutionary was that light bearers were not to be understood only as descendants of Abraham. How long did it take for us to begin to take for granted who God's children were? Every denomination has this sense of entitlement. But the kingdom exists outside of our congregations, outside of our denominations. The kingdom is God's plan for the world. It's been his plan from the beginning, Paul says, revealed in recent times in Jesus. That's, and this idea of, it, of a light being a reference to it isn't new either. In the Old Testament, light was a substance that brings forth desired effects. Light keeps chaos and darkness at bay. Most general and specific, thank you, manifestations of God are the operations of his creation. Very much about his creation of light. He begins by creating light. So the symbolism of light in the Old Testament, it impacts life. It refers to salvation. It rescues us from danger. It brings order into the world. It is frequently coupled with the truth, and the recipients of light become a light themselves to others, as is implied in the passages we've looked at. We, we are the light of the world because we've joined God's kingdom. Admission to the kingdom is only open to those who accept a startling new fact. It isn't open to us because of heritage or birth or place, but it is stated expressly by Leslie Newbigin, an Anglican missionary and scholar, 
this way. In the ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus, God has acted decisively to reveal and affect His purpose of redemption for the world. So now you see the role of darkness. It is to obscure that fact. It is to obscure that fact. Darkness hides chaos in the world. Darkness hides the source of sin in the world. It exists in opposition to the righteousness and mercy that God reveals in the world. And twice now, we have been told that we are to be those who transport, who transfer that righteousness and mercy into the brokenness of the world, both in terms of a need for healing and now in a need for light. Because that's what builds shalom, God's purpose for creation. It was shalom that Adam and Eve experienced in the garden, and it was shalom that they lost. And one of the most tragic verses to me in all of Scripture is found in Luke's Gospel on when he's relating the story of Palm Sunday. And Jesus rides into that town, and he halts. He gets off of that donkey. He looks out over the city, and he starts to cry. Luke remembers his words as, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you don't know how to build shalom. Yes, they were sinners. Yes, they had killed prophets. Yes, they had worked against God's purposes. But the tragedy that Jesus mourned over was the inability to build well-being for others and in relationship to God. You're the light of the world, Jesus says. There's a perennial temptation for those of us who are kingdom members. We, it's uncomfortable for us to be a subculture. It's uncomfortable for us to be, I, I mean, it, it's human nature for us to want to be in the majority and be like everybody else. Uh, one of my assignments that I've got from my sociology class, the students are going to have to describe for me how they can achieve individuality and be like everybody else at the same time. Because that's what they're trying to do. But so are you and me. Kingdom people often forget that no culture carries the means for building shalom. I have not found it in any country that I've lived in, including our own. One of the things that we don't want to talk about is that original sin doesn't just impact us as individuals, it impacts the way we live together with each other. And there is the sin that I need to repeat, repent of, no, not repeat, excuse me, the sins that 
I need to repent of. And you don't have to tell me when I've done it again. Brenda will. And if she doesn't, one of our kids will. And now some vocal grandchildren. We need to repent of our sin. But so we must we repent of our cultural sin. The sin that has been carried from generation to generation. Because darkness will cause us to lose ourselves. To lose ourselves in relationship to God. To lose ourselves in relationship to each other. And to lose ourselves in relationship to self. So we must be on guard for sin at two levels, a darkness at two levels, personally and collectively. Because when we are not living in a personal relationship with God and when those around us are not living in a personal relationship with God, it is a dangerous place the world is for us to live. It's violent. It's full of hate. It's full of destructive acts aimed at others. Intended to bring them harm. And we live in a culture that enables that. We have cultural forms that make that possible. And and yet we've been brainwashed as people of the kingdom to believe that we can be identified with our American culture. We cannot. So you see a fuller picture of what it means to be children of the light, to what it means to be the light of the world requires us to be aware and speaking out, of living out, countering darkness at both levels. Now, in the Old Testament, if, if, if you haven't studied the Old Testament enough, you need to look at what happens when you go from the book of Judges into the kingdom. The book of Judges, there's plenty of sin, but God is continuing to work with the tribes, and He is present as their ruler. And, and they're, they're in a, a, a situation in which shalom is the thing that they are all seeking, poorly, but that's what they're seeking. When you get to the kingdom... They've, they've given up on that. They've now decided to become like everybody else. And the kingdom and the royalty begin to make that very clear. In fact, the social reforms initiated by David and by Solomon set the Jewish community on a course of building a culture that was every bit as adverse to what God intended as any other culture around them. And then the prophets show up. Walter Brueggemann, who used to be an Old Testament professor over in Webster Groves at Eden Seminary, wrote a book called The Prophetic Imagination. And he says the prophetic imagination is possible because God is outside of our world. He's outside of our culture. He's outside of our society, and he makes his expectations very clearly known to us. And then they get blurred by living. They get blurred by our habits. They get blurred by our our traditions. And God raises up a prophet. 
and through the imagination of what it would be if God's righteousness and God's mercy were active in that society, the prophet speaks. That's what Elijah did. That's what Elisha did. That's what Amos did. Isaiah and Jeremiah. They speak to those forces. The most powerful forces that have shaped American culture are European. British more particularly. And the racism which we have practiced is generally hidden from those of us with predominantly European identities. You know, it wasn't for almost 70 years that the residents of Jamestown, well, for the first almost 70 years, the Jamestown, residents of Jamestown referred to themselves as Christians. And then when they began making laws to allow for the permanent enslavement of Africans, their minutes and their historical markers shift, and they no longer refer to themselves as Christians, they refer to themselves as white. And most of the tenaciousness of racism in our culture exists at a subconscious level. You see, culture is like an iceberg. You're not aware of it, and I'm not aware of it. We, it operates on us. It shapes us. It gives us shortcuts on how to act. Otherwise, we would never get anything done. But it also hides from plain sight those things that we need to pay attention to. For example, where do you think our cultural emphasis on the individual came from? It isn't in Scripture. It isn't in traditional societies. Where did it come from? Well, it became from us being a nation of consumers. Capitalist thinkers have long advocated that the healthiest economy is the one driven by individuals seeking their own self-interest. I'm a capitalist. I'm a business owner. You didn't know that. I own a business in, in Rwanda. I'm a business owner. I've used business solutions to, to help uh, renew communities. But an unintended consequence of our capitalism, of our culture, is when individualism has given such rise and we've become a con consumer economy. Like, it isn't just that we're a consumer economy. We are now consumers. And it isn't just what we buy. It's who we're friends with. And it is what we believe. And it's where we worship. You know, this individualism has shaped our view of how to treat the unborn. It has shaped our view of how to treat the poor and the immigrant because all too often our reference point is ourselves and not the character of God, which must be shining through our actions and our words. Where is our prophetic sensitivity? So Brueggemann says we've got to have this vision 
to live towards. It is necessary so that we can live as God's children who are salt and light. So, where do we find sin? We find it in our lives individually, and we find it in our lives collectively. It's hard. It's much easier for us to talk about some sins than others. And so most often, we have talked about sexual sins. Rarely have we talked about greed. We talk about theft. But it's only the kind of theft that occurs when somebody breaks into one person's house and steals it. It's not the kind of theft that makes it possible for somebody to use the rule of law to take it away from them. Yeah. Confronting sin is hard. And it must be approached with grace. But grace never compromises honesty. My experience has been when we are confronting darkness that the more hidden the sin is, the longer it will take for us to uncover it and the more attempts that it will take and the greater amount of grace that we need to extend to each other. But we have no option because the light has broken into the world and you and I claim citizenship in the kingdom of light which makes us light in the world. So, one final caution. Don't confuse prophetic imagination with judgmentalism. Our ability to shine our light is our ability not to put bushel baskets over it. Right? Judgmentalism. Is a bushel basket. I mean, when, when our self-righteousness replaces God's righteousness, we have just inserted a huge bushel basket over our light. When our inconsistency to live in a loving, healing way with others is made known, then our words of testimony have a, a, a bushel basket over them. So, it makes sense. Don't put a bushel basket over your light. Because that's who you are. That's who you are. You are the light of the world. It is not a, 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 a supposition. Jesus did not say you can become he said, you are. Are you a bright light? Are you a dim light? I invite you, as we come to this time, and I will lead us in our final prayer. Before I do, that you consider the quality of your light.
Do you provide a light by which somebody could read a book? Do you provide a light by which someone could walk a dark path? Do you provide a light that would enlighten a basketball court so kids could play on it? That's a lot of light. What kind of light do you provide? Let's pray. Lord, as we begin this prayer, I want us to consider the words you had written in Lamentations. Why should any who draw breath complain about the punishment of their sins? Let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. Let us lift up our hearts as well as our hands to God in heaven. We have transgressed and rebelled and you have not forgiven. We're in the midst of crisis, Lord. We face it as a nation, and we face it as a world, and we face it as a community and as families. But that's something we share. And it creates smaller crises for us one of the things that can happen but doesn't always is that we can use these strains on our life, these disruptions, to reevaluate. You can lead us from personal sin because of a crisis. You can lead us to repentance over our poor behavior or our angry words. Can this national crisis lead us to repent of our national sins? Can it cause us to evaluate our economic activity in light of the principles you gave us in Deuteronomy 15? Because we are not just people of this culture. We're people of your kingdom. Help us to learn how to be that how to do that because you've not given us any choice we are salt and light I pray Lord that you will lead us from this place humbled by your word and inspired by your spirit to live your kingdom's life this week in Jesus name Amen. May God bless you this week. May you live lives of service and love. Go in peace.